WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. Uh, and our guest this week is the writer behind the new Aftershock series, I Breathe the Body, as well as series like Lonely Receiver, No One's Rose, Undone by Blood, Yondu, and Age of X-Man. Please welcome back to the show, Zach Thompson. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so uh, no, no sooner than uh, Aftershock finished putting out Lonely Receiver, uh, you, you've got a new series, uh, I Breathe the Body. Uh, just came out last week as we're recording. They're, they're two very different books, but they're, they're both disturbing in a way that I feel like we haven't seen from you in a bit. You know, I'm thinking of, of your earlier work, like Come Into Me and stuff like that. Um, are you expelling some, some, some 2020 anxiety here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. I think um, it's funny because like uh, Lonely Receiver was written almost entirely during 2019, Mm-hmm. Um, and then sort of because of COVID and everything, it got shifted around and it almost became more relevant because it, it dealt with isolation and loneliness and that kind of thing. So coming out during the lockdown was a really weird way to see people sort of interpret things that I was like scratching at a year ago. Mm-hmm. And then I Breathe the Body is definitely sort of like uh, me like uh, screaming until there's like bile in the back of my throat, how dangerous social media is. And particularly sort of like writing it over the summer and, and leading into the end of the year as we're witnessing like countless acts of violence on social media and, you know, encroaching stages of, of fascism at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, that book didn't, couldn't come out fast enough, really. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, so let's take a step back for a second in case readers aren't familiar. Uh, Matt, would you dramatically read some solicit text for a Scooby snack? Ring, Raggy. <laughs> <laughs> when the world's biggest influencer posts something irredeemably horrific online, the world changes in an instant. Now it's up to his social media manager, Ann Stewart, to fan the flames of outrage and create a sensationalist campaign that rewrites the rules of banned content. Thus begins a carnival of lust, revulsion, desire, and disgust, all for viral videos. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, we, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, sort of the influences that, that went into this book. But, you know, how far back can you sort of trace this one's origins? Um, pretty far back, actually. So, like, a couple of years ago probably 2017, um, I was working as a video producer for like one of the largest journalism websites in North America. I won't name them because the story is going to get bad in a second. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you can easily look it up. (laughs) Um, And during that time, part of my job was working with influencers to create sort of, um, for lack of a better term, sort of like woke man on the ground sort of style journalism with people who had large audiences. Mm-hmm. And uh, during that whole process, it worked out really well. Sometimes we got some really cool stuff, just like more human uh, grounded emotional stuff from influencers. But as time went on, um, people became more interested in doing this kind of thing with bigger names. Um, so it kind of came to a head when uh, we were pursuing Logan Paul, uh, much to my dismay. <laughs> and they wanted him to come in and create some like uh, sort of journalism content. But during that time, he posted the video of the uh, dead body in the, the Japanese suicide forest. Mm-hmm. And I sat in a room and I watched a group of growing individuals rationalize why it was okay that we all woke up and saw a dead body that morning on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And it was just like the the writer in my brain is just going like, holy fuck, like people are completely okay with this. Like not only are they okay with it, but like they're making a case as to why we should continue to work with this person and pursue work, even though that to me really felt like an egregious sort of crossing of a line. And also just the the trauma of, of like actually having that happen um, and and watching it and sort of like, thinking about the level of voyeurism that that kind of created. And I mean, that was three years ago. And I, and arguably the internet's become even worse and you can see stuff like that all the time now. Mm-hmm. It's, 
it's like, uh, I, I guess this might not be as relevant to your generation, but the, there used to be that video series, Faces of Death. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not as special now. <laughs> no, it certainly isn't. Because it's, it's like, it, you can see it on your Instagram feed, sort of like unprompted, right? From an account that like otherwise is like videos of beer or whatever, but they're out in the street and they see something crazy and they record it and then you see it and then you send it to someone and then that sort of like violence or transgression sort of spreads. And it really was interesting to me. I was like, how do I tell a book about people who like know this and then are trying to manufacture it into something? And I think that we've, we've seen multiple sort of like campaigns that sort of like lead into like trolling people and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But what happens when you troll people with actual violence and sort of uh, transgression? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's surreal that even the places that are expected to be safe aren't safe on the internet. I, I, I have a soft spot for bunnies. My, yeah. my wife loves bunnies and she's developed it in me. And so there was a, I can't remember if it was Twitter or Facebook or something where there was, you know, it's just people posting photos of their bunnies. And somebody decided to post a funeral photo. So it's basically like one of those old school sepia, you know, photos, but it's the bunny. It was like, initially I was like, oh, the bunny's sleeping on the ground. Oh, that bunny's not. They were preparing to bury their pet rabbit and they decided to take a picture of their dead pet rabbit and put it in the spot where people post photos, cute photos and videos of their bunnies doing cute stuff. I was like, um, that's not cool. Yeah, that's crazy. And that's, and that's the type of thing that like, I find really interesting because there's no real consent there. There's no real attempt to, to warn people. And we sort of have become really used to just like going online and like seeing some crazy shit and then being like, well, I guess I got to go back to work. Uh, <laughs> you know, like that no more evident than like what two weeks ago we saw like a, a fascist coup and I'm like, well, I got to get this script done, but I literally can't stop watching the, the coup live on Twitter. Like, and that was like so perverse to me. I was just like, I can't believe not only that it was happening, but that people were like on Twitch, you know, like live broadcasting it. And it's like that, to, I was like, oh, well, maybe this book will be more relevant than I had anticipated. <laughs> I'm going to just jump ahead a little to a question that basically directly addresses that because the whole thing with the social media in the book is that it's un, it's unmoderated and that's seemed incredibly relevant with all the stuff about a parlor that happened immediately, you know, proceeding, but then the response to it after the events of the sixth and did that when, as you were watching that, was it like, oh, wow, my book is suddenly even more prescient than I thought it would be. Yeah, I think, like, a lot of this comes from, I was trying really hard to, like, read about, like, you know, what does Edward Snowden think about social media? What is, what is someone like that uh, talking about the dangers of? And another guy that I absolutely love is Cory Doctorow, and he sort of gets into, like, all these really ethical problems with where social media is heading. And so for me, I was like, well, what is the worst version of what the ecosystem that we have now and that unmoderated, unfiltered sort of like, you know, the idea that it's democratic and that certain things rise to the top, but it's like, you know, uh, just because it's like unmoderated doesn't mean that like violence or death won't instantly rise to the top and become the the biggest trending topic. In fact, because those things are so taboo, uh, by not regulating things, it will immediately push it to the top. And you saw that on Parler, like when when you see this type of stuff that people were saying, it's horrifying. It's the type of stuff that you would never say in public. You would never say to another individual, but it's death threats against like elected officials and it's it's calling for insurrection, that kind of thing. And it's like, it's odd that people don't make the connection between like, well, when I say that online, I'm still saying it, I'm still responsible for it. It's almost as if there's this degree of like, well, it's not really reality, so it doesn't really matter. But, you know, the worlds are colliding in a very big way. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. Um, You know, 
thematically there there are links between I breed the body and, and lonely receiver in talking about you know different different sort of uses or or or, or you know twi uh, twisted uses of big tech. Um, but there's also uh, roots in this new book, uh, pun all the way intended, uh, in, in No One's Rose, uh, the, the eco-punk book that you did with Emily Horn and uh, Albert Albuquerque, Albuquerque over at Vault uh, last year. Uh, you know, is, is that uh, No One's Rose, is that the book where you sort of realized, yes, Father, I shall become a mushroom? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, in, a, in a big way, No One's Rose uh, was this thing for me that I, I recognize that like a huge part of my personality is a love for nature, a love for animals. You know, I love Swamp Thing, I love Animal Man, and I love going outside in the forest and just spending time out there. And as Emily and I were writing No One's Rose, we were both researching mushrooms because there's like a large fungal metropolis in that book. And, and basically what happened is that world was so big that we actually didn't have the time to put all of our research into it. And so I kind of became obsessed with mushrooms and foraging, live in the Pacific Northwest. So I was able to go on a lot of hikes and find mushrooms in the wild and start to learn about them. But, uh, you know, in a roundabout way, I'll come back to the idea that like, no one's rose was this inflection point for me where I was like, I want to put nature and I want to put animals in my books going forward, whether they are exist as a metaphor or something else. And so when I was talking about doing a book about the internet, I knew that I wanted to set this in the future. I knew that I wanted it to be like, the, what I kind of say to people is like 20 minutes into the future. The idea being that it's still kind of grounded, but there's elements of it that don't quite make sense. And the more I learned about mushrooms, I was like, mycelium is this interesting way to talk about the connections that people share and the connections that we have due to social media. So it became this really interesting metaphor where I got to do all of this really fun research and, and weave it into like a weird sci-fi horror book. So I'm like, I'm teaching you stuff about mushrooms at the same time, I'm scaring the shit out of you. <laughs> best, best is of that work. a mushroom <laughs> yeah. in behind to your right? So yeah, for, for, our, for our listeners who aren't seeing this, there, there seems to be a, a, some sort of poster of mushrooms over Zach's right shoulder. And if you, if I get up from my chair, I'm sitting on a mushroom blanket. Well, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> You're now going to just keep getting presents of mushroom things for the rest of your natural life. Yeah, Christmas was a weird one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, you know, and that's the funny thing. So in, in, I'm looking at that sort of diagram of all these different kinds of mushrooms over your shoulder. In prepping for this interview, one of the things that I Googled was just the phrase creepy mushrooms. And I, I think 35 years of Super Mario Brothers warped my brain about what mushrooms look like because I unlocked this treasure trove of of not so fungi that that either looked like you know, diseased dicks or or horror monsters. Um Yeah. <laughs> you know do you have what's your what's your favorite mushroom to get squicked out by <laughs> there's uh ones that are called like dead man's fingers that mm. or dead man's toes sorry that actually look like big toes that like and you can see them like sticking out of like the underbrush and it's it's honestly amazing it's some of my favorite shit like nature is just so cool when you can see stuff like that um and that's the one i i show people all the time there's also these um blood red mushrooms that leak like all basically blood and they create this like really viscous acidy stuff that if you get on your fingers it can like burn through your your fingers and just like these types of things that are complete defense mechanisms but they look lovely and delicious and then you go up and touch it and you're like ah. <laughs> um you have to be really careful when you're foraging actually because you don't really usually you have to use gloves and a knife and sort of cut them open and sort of look at them because there's so many different types of mushrooms that actually look remarkably similar, but like one will be edible and one will be very poisonous. And um, when you're in the middle of the woods and you don't have a cell phone signal, it's kind of difficult to, so you have to like cut them and look at the gills and like poke them and stuff. But I've gotten really good at that last couple of months. So, so there'll, there'll be places where you can't kind of pull out your mushroom Pokedex uh, as, as it were. <laughs> Yeah, just yeah, refer yeah. to it instantly. Okay. <laughs> um, conversely, you know, what's what's sort of the most 
interesting thing that you've learned that mushrooms can do that doesn't spoil the plot of your book. Because, uh, you know, I was reading, you know, I started reading all these articles that said that, you know, mycelium uh, could be used to replace plastics and styrofoam as an organic substitute. And there was this other one about how they're uh, using using fun- uh, mushrooms to clean up things like, like oil spills and, and, you know, maybe even radiation. Like there was talk of using it to, uh, around the, um, the Fukushima Daiichi site in Japan. Um, yeah, yeah. People were making like bricks and art out of it. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, and I think that's the big thing for me is like the versatility of what it can grow inside. Like it, it actually doesn't necessarily need life in order to grow. And in many respects, uh, mushrooms can grow literally out of death. They, they can take uh, material that no longer has any vital nutrients left in it for anything else that exists and, and actually create life in and of itself. And they're self-replicating in that really interesting way. So like, you know, you can there's types of mushrooms that can punch through like two tons of concrete. They'll literally break it, shatter it, and then grow uh, from the ground beneath it. And to me, I find that, like you said, like the, the amount of applicable uses in terms of climate change and solving some of the problems that uh, we've been facing at the end of you know, 2020 and beyond, uh, I think that mushrooms present this really interesting uh, solution to science and the, and a variety of different ways. And like, it'll be interesting to see where they go. I truly think, and part of this book is me going like, they will be integrated within technology and in very intimate ways. And they will be, um, we will sort of look back in 30 years and laugh that we didn't look at mushrooms the same way that we do now, just based on the research I've done. You know, I've read multiple books about mushrooms and most of them say, here's all the crazy shit we do know. And that's only 5% of what these things can do because we haven't really had a dedicated body of people studying these things for a really long time. Hmm. We're only using 10% of our brains and 5% of our mushrooms. Uh, (laughs) uh, One Twitter question that we got, uh, longtime listener, first time caller, Zach Jenkins asks, uh, what is your favorite recipe involving mushrooms? Uh, you know, I'm, so I'm vegan and uh, use mushrooms a lot, but uh, a mushroom miso gravy is Ooh. incredible. Um, very, very simple. You can look it up online and, and get the, the recipe. Um, if you basically have a bunch of mushrooms lying around and you've got some miso paste, you can make some really serious gravy without any of like the chicken or the beef stock or whatever. And it's super delicious. Um, makes a really mean vegan poutine. Oh, yeah. All right. Take it. Love it. So the cover for I Breathe the Body number one pulls zero punches. <laughs> My wife, who is big capital letters, not a horror person, specifically asked me to put another comic on top of my stack to keep her nightmares at bay. Real quick, what uh, book, what book that, did you end up putting on top? Uh, Bat Cat, because it was my stack of things I need to read for reviews and or podcasts. Okay. <laughs> listening. So as opposed to horrible flayed body, it was Clayman's lovingly rendered <laughs> Catwoman's ass. Um <laughs> But uh, nonetheless, I mean, was that particularly gruesome image, something you had in mind? Was it like, this cover needs to scream, we have such sights? A hundred thousand percent. It was, it was that. Um, because like, I, I see, um, I've never had two books released so close together. Um, and Lonely Receiver is this like minimalist sort of neon nightmare and i thought that's really interesting and people really respond to that and and that exists as this like one side of the pole and to me i was like well how do you do the other side and how do you go like hey people who didn't maybe give lonely receiver a chance come over here let's do some crazy fucking gore and let's just like let's show you on the front cover of number one we're not fucking around (laughs) and it was really, uh, it was like made as a love letter to some of Clive Barker's art. Like that's a lot of the stuff that I sent Andy as reference was like the original covers to the books of blood. And I was like, I want to create something that's like visually arresting like this. This has to have like Barker type energy. And he absolutely nailed it. So 
Yeah, I was curious because I know you posted on Twitter your sort of reading list going into this book if Barker was something that had influenced you before that because this when it comes to body horror it's Barker and Cronenberg as sort of the the foundational texts of modern body horror yeah and and that uh, I mean those two guys are very near and dear to my heart their entire bodies of work I am uh, a crazy fan about and, and sort of uh, originally when this book came to me uh, I was reading the hellbound heart for the first time and so it a lot of that sort of like pollinated the idea and then um, actually like when when this book finally got greenlit and it was ready to go I reread the damnation game and the damnation game is very much about a character who is involved in something that is extremely sort of off-putting and crazy and he just keeps descending down with this billionaire essentially uh who who continues to sort of like push him and you find out you know the billionaire has this Faustian pact with a demon and and I thought well, wouldn't that be interesting to do something akin to that, but in the world of social media, bring, bring this idea of a descent into depravity and the deeper and deeper you go, like how do you retain your humanity in the face of like making these awful decisions? And that's a question that stares down so many people who work for Facebook and work for, for Twitter. Like how do you retain your humanity when you're like, oh, we were partly responsible for an insurrectionist coup in, in the Capitol building. Like, shouldn't if shouldn't you resign the, the day that that happens out of protest unless they make a change or, or whatever and like we did see real change come out of that but like a lot of my reading was motivated by how do i learn more about silicon valley so like there's an incredible book that came out last year called uncanny valley by anna wiener and uh, she worked in a bunch of different startups over four years and she just sort of wrote about her, her experience and it's as crazy as you might expect there and, and the, the excess and the idea that like, you know, the money doesn't matter. They're, they're just sort of like, well, we're worth $9 billion today. So like everyone gets a $300 backpack and a North Face jacket just because like we put our logos on a bunch of them and it's just like, wow, that's, you know, that's why people work in that environment. But it also goes to show you that like nothing's really taken seriously. Nothing really matters for more than a moment because you're already worth so much, you already have so much power that you don't really have to, to worry about the repercussions of your actions and you don't have to really worry about the, the reality of like, well, are you actually worth $9 billion or are you like a, a company that like, you know, uh, bleeds $100 million a year, but people say you're worth $9 billion because of other people who want to buy you or whatever. And I thought that sort of like weird, like, in between nature was also something that really fit to, to mushrooms as well, because a lot of different types of mushrooms are neither alive nor dead. So they sort of occupy this like weird liminal space. Um, and the book gets into that in a big way as it goes forward too, uh, because I like to challenge myself. <laughs> so spe speaking on liminal spaces, I'm kind of curious in literature, since we're sort of in that vein for the moment, why Caliban as the last name? Because I'm a, this is the second interview in a row where I've gotten to go all Shakespeare, which is exciting to, to me as someone who studied Shakespeare. But that, I mean, the, the liminal space between man and monster is part of Caliban as a character. But was there anything aside from that? Or was that even there? And, or am I just like, Oh, Shakespeare nerd inserting his own interpretation of the Tempest on your book. No, you're you're on something, but it's just something that isn't quite uh, with only one issue out. There's a little bit more to go. Uh, similar to like the the last sort of panel of the book makes a specific reference to something mm -hmm. that carries a lot of weight. And if you've read that book and you and you sort of know what that is referencing, that uh, mushroom that you see at the end of the issue very much represents something akin to, to what it's referencing. And much like the last name Caliban, I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to give that last name to one, a, a big tech billionaire who, uh, you know, in modern society, 
what else would be the half man half monster like when you look at mark zuckerberg like there's very little humanity left there um but beyond that i thought well it's also just like uh it really works for influencers in that like that kid milo in the book he's this crass sort of like unapologetically dickhead kid but he's beautiful and people like him and like you know you read his apology in the first issue and it's like profoundly insincere and it, it veers off into weird tangents that are like makes it all about him and i thought well it's very interesting that's sort of like what a modern monster is or are these people who are just like so attention hungry and like despite even like doing something awful to other people they still make it all about them because like the apology is more important than the hurt i guess you, you know who the monster is by how many times they say click like and subscribe <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah we haven't seen a, a monster make anything like a giant bloody insurrection completely about them. Not, not at all. That's not anything <laughs> we've seen in the past two weeks. And I, and I also think like there's, there's an element of all of this too, that I think um, not to get too deep, but like we all are people who have things that we need to promote on social media. And uh, it's so easy to feel insincere when you're doing something like that. It's so easy to feel like you're annoying people because you're, tweeting about something too often or whatever. And there's that real interesting liminal space it puts you in where you're like, I'm super proud of this thing, but I also feel like I'm an annoying fucking idiot who's prattling on to an audience of, of people who don't want to listen or, or whatever. And it, it creates this like internal sort of conversation you have with yourself about like, should I not be proud of the things that I do? Should I not uh, you know, talk about them with excitement? Should I admonish myself for the things that I do online? And it's like, I, I really have committed to the idea of like, no, I'm just going to be myself. And if you don't want to fucking come along on the ride, then jump off board. I don't, I don't care. Cause like I, but I also believe wholeheartedly that like in terms of my feeds and that kind of stuff, like I, I basically focus on lifting up things I like talking about the things I love and if I don't like something or I'm mad about something, I generally don't say anything because people will get that bullshit everywhere else online. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that nicely answers my next question about your relationship with social media. So we can <laughs> skip that. Well, I can tell you a little bit about how it's changed since uh, I Please. started working on the book because it's changed a lot, actually. Um, you know, uh, I think that like the the current state of the world is very stressful. Um, there's a lot, lot of stuff going on and social media sort of pulls you in and, and you want to sort of feel like you're in control um, by looking at it constantly. And what I've felt over the last year, specifically with COVID, mm -hmm. um, when the lockdowns first started happening, I was like, oh, fuck, this is it. Diamonds over. The comic book industry is going tits up like it's it's all happening like you know and i got really nervous about it and i was talking to other creators and we were all sort of hyper activated around this and like i feel like that actually took years off of my life like in this very real way because i was so tapped in every single day worrying and like communicating that anxiety and and consuming too much shit so and doing all this research for this book and that happening at the same time, I now have turned off notifications entirely on my phone. Um, so nothing actually pushes me to like open apps. Um, I've removed a lot of different apps from my phone. So like Twitter, for example, I don't have on my phone anymore. I only use it when I'm on the desktop and that's created a nice barrier for me. So I don't get up in the morning, open my phone and doom scroll for an hour uh, now what happens is I get up and I like have coffee or I go for a walk and I'm like, I'm had this like blissful two hour period where I don't know what happened while I slept because part of living on the, the Pacific coast is like you wake up and things are already on fire and, and the other times coast like, been ah. busy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so like, it's good to sort of have that moment where you're like not tapped in because you kind of always feel like you're playing catch up when you wake up in a different time zone. And so like 
a lot of that's been curated and, and changed in a way that like, I maybe wouldn't have if I hadn't written this book, but I, I learned so much about the way that those notifications are used to sort of remind you to come back constantly and remind you to do things that you otherwise normally wouldn't. And I am like trying to break the cycle in myself so I can sort of have a healthier ecosystem. And like, I sometimes just turn off my phone all weekend. Like Friday when I'm done of work, I just go, I'm out. And then I come back on Monday and it's so nice. Like as much as I love social media because it's helped me connect with people who read my work and, and really be part of the comic book community, which is like, that was something that I didn't know I was missing and has enriched my life in, in so many different incredible ways um, because just sharing this crazy passion for, you know, periodicals that are like floppy and crazy and have tons of covers. It's like, it's just a nice thing to go into that space and talk to people about that stuff. And we all care about it probably too much. So (laughs) (laughs) it's good to be with people who are crazy like me is what I'm trying to say. But I'm also, I need space away from it because I I really have, I'm trying to also just compartmentalize my life in, in really meaningful ways that don't, where I don't go like, you know, I'm not at dinner with my partner and like, hey, I just got 50 likes on this tweet. She's going to be like, shut up, dude. <laughs> <laughs> how, how down the rabbit hole have you gone thinking about how you've written a book about the dark side of social media engagement that itself is generating a lot of social media engagement? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, I, 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 is there a weird mushroom screaming somewhere? CPR gives it nine out of 10 stars. <laughs> it's super weird. Uh, and like, it's, this, it's weird. It, yeah. I, I've thought about this so much because I'm just sort of like, you know, it's using the systems that you're criticizing in order to get the word out about your thing. And the, the thing that I've sort of come to is like, these are natural parts of, of life now. Um, mm-hmm. You can't really do a thing like make comics or make art without some form of social media presence. Um, that balance is, is, is key, but it's also just like, hell yeah, if people want to post about it on social media, great, keep doing that, keep sure. spreading the word because that is great for, for books and like be it my books or anyone else's, if you like a thing, the most important thing you can do is share it with other people and tell people you like it because that's how these things can continue to sort of live. Having said all of that, um, you know, I wish there was an ecosystem in which we didn't have to exist online to, to sell products that you didn't have to market it, that you could just release a thing and then just like, you know, people could just experience it and not um, talk about it constantly. But I do think that that sort of created like really cool sort of connections between people that didn't exist previously. And I think that the big thing that I've come to a conclusion about with social media is that the tools in and of themselves are great. It is unfortunately because of the discussions that happen and the very nature of people who wanna be dicks through that sort of barrier that they have, they will inherently make it a, a shitty space. But the reason we're seeing so much shitty behavior online and so much rage and anger isn't because the tools themselves are problematic. It's because we don't really have any other means to communicate. There's only a a small set of these apps that we can use that are viable, that have audiences there. And then all of that hate and that pain that we see, I really think it boils down to like systematic failures on, on a government or societal level in which people don't necessarily have a full understanding or grasp of, of what trauma that's creating in their lives. And then they're outwardly sort of like expressing that trauma because they don't have anywhere else to go. And I was talking to my often co-writer, Lonnie Nadler, about this. I said, most people just get a Twitter account instead of going to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like that's pretty accurate. <laughs> Uh, I, I've been saying this since the election, but I, I certainly had more cause to say it uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, 300 million people need therapy. Uh, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. speaking of America, obviously, uh, when I when I say that. But yeah, like 
we all just fucking need to go to therapy. hundred <laughs> percent. And, and sort of process some of that trauma, right? I think there's there's a lot of stuff that happens in real time sometimes where you're like, oh, you know what? Like, I want to take the bait and I want to debate this person about this thing. But they also seem like they're kind of in pain or they don't fully understand the thing that they're talking about. And it's like me being like, hey, fuck you. And this, you got your facts wrong. Like, that's not going to change their mind, right? So it's like, I just have this empathetic response more often than not. For for some people, other people yeah. are just awful and they deserve to, you know, like throw Ted Cruz in a pit of snakes and live stream that. That would be great. Or <laughs> yeah. for the Nazi punching. We, 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 yeah. we are WMQ&A and we support this, this statement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ted, Ted Cruz is the guy in that panel from Preacher where, where Jesse Custer is like, you, where is your chin? Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which is probably why Seth Rogen fucking hates him so much. <laughs> There's the connection. <laughs> there it is. It's it's all it's all linked. And I also just realized I gave Jesse Custer a British accent. Te- noted Texan Jesse Custer. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Um, <laughs> you know, people always give Spider Jerusalem a, a British accent, and he's American, but he's also a Warren Ellis character, and they all are British. That's what I mean. I gave I gave Jesse Garth Ennis's accent. Now Ka- Cassidy has. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cassidy's got the. But anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, enough of me correcting myself. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's uh, funny just thinking about. You know, my son is nine, and he's been sniffing around the edges of like YouTuber culture. Uh, like he watches a lot of videos where people play Minecraft and and open packs of Pokemon cards and do fun like Mr. Wizard type science stuff, but. I definitely at one point, not because specifically of what he was watching, but just because it was like a worry in my head, was like, sit down, son. And I gave him the speech about how the second any of these people start spouting white uh, supremacist dogma that that he needs to punch out, like, you know, the the, the downside of the whole Andy Warhol often misinterpreted quote about how in the future everyone will be famous for 15 minutes is that a lot of everyone is Nazis. (laughs) Yeah. And, and the other thing that I think about all the time is that there, like, you can have content for two years that are, is just Pokemon unboxings, right? Mm-hmm. Then that person sees a video and they, and they watch Alex Jones and they're like, you know what? He's fucking right. And then they, their channel evolves. You know, they start talking about white nationalism as they're opening Pokemon cards, right? The, the content might be the same, but the message changes. And there's this, the, the internet kind of works like that rabbit hole where like you just sort of naturally find yourself in these weird niche communities, not even really by design, you sort of just keep getting recommended and those prompts to sort of stay engaged can bring you down some really weird paths. And it's like, I don't envy having to have a conversation with a nine year old being like, you might see some crazy shit because, you know, I, when I was a kid, I had dial-up internet um, and like that was a like I grew up in a very small place in Canada I didn't get high-speed internet until I was like probably 15 so like I didn't really and like I'm not even that old it's just that the the telecommunications companies just sucked where I was and but it, I'm so happy that I grew up that way because I remember what it was like to not have the answer to things to not be able to be engaged online for so long to to have to go rent a movie be, and like and not know not look it up beforehand but just to like walk in and, and sort of have that sense of discovery and then whatever you get you go home with and you endure it even if you don't like it mm-hmm. and now we have the option to sort of like switch all the time and just so we're happy or or feeling entertained but that also leads to these weird recommendation engines that sort of like oh well you like pokemon card unboxings well maybe you'll like this white nationalism video. And, <laughs> and like, I don't know why that happens, but it happens, right? And then you're sort of like, it, that you can't turn that off once that switch happens. Yeah. You looked up a video about Wiccans in nature. Have a video about the QAnon shaman. There's a connection. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly, right? And like, I think I was listening to this really great podcast. Um, I think it was by the New York Times. Um, and it sort of looked at QAnon and internet culture. Um, 
And one episode in particular talked to an older woman in her 50s um, who became like a big QAnon person. And her whole thing was essentially that she lost everything in the 2008 financial crisis and endured uh, an immense level of trauma uh, from that. And then trying to make sense of that, she started watching YouTube videos about like money managers. And then that sort of led into a thing that was like, well, maybe the Jews were behind like the 2008 financial crisis. And then that led her into QAnon. And like, and like, don't get me wrong, that's bigoted bullshit. But the idea was that she had pain in her heart, that she was looking for an explanation. And unfortunately, I think a lot of these things that these small ecosystems that exist online use dog whistle language and weaponize that trauma to bring people in. And so they feel like they have special knowledge. They feel like they've, they've stumbled into this part of the internet that people don't want you to find. And now that you know, you like it's your job to go out to the world and convince others that you need to show them the truth. And like that gets into a whole fucking really terrible rabbit hole. And, and it's because of those recommendation engines where, you know, you like shamans? Well, now you like QAnon shaman. And you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> ah, I got a Jigglypuff. Sandy Hook was a false flag. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's like, you know, if you're like, I, I used to, I used to actually watch Alex Jones to laugh. Like I was like, because it seems so absurd to me, right? Like you have this guy who's talking about chemicals in the water that turn frogs gay. And then like five minutes after that, He's like, now get my penis enlargement pills. And you're just like, why would anyone think this is like a, a normal journalist? You know what I mean? But like, it, that doesn't seem to compute. People don't seem to have that, like, don't think about the context of like, oh, well, if this guy's like offering male enhancement supplements, maybe he's not a journalist. You know what I mean? Like, can you imagine if you were like watching CNN and like Don Lemon was like, you guys got to get these dick pills. Like, you'd be like, what? <laughs> and when we come back, Transportation Secretary Elaine Chow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. This is yeah. Uh, so, so uh, moving back to the book and some process. And some <laughs> yes, Matt steers out of this skid, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. I, I believe me, I've read Department of Truth. I can go on for a while on this, but but let's let's just go back. Um, uh, will we be seeing more back matter? I, I love a book with some back matter, and I loved the the interview art slash article at the end of issue one. Yeah, um, that's a that's a big thing for me. Is I, I really love those like. I talk about all the time, like primary source documents from the world. Um, to me, I was like, you know, this book kind of throws you into the world. I like doing that kind of thing because one, there's just so many elements of this world, like, you know, showing the skyline of San Francisco and there's a giant fucking mushroom in the skyline. And you're like, yeah, this book's going to get weird. And then like, you know, 10 pages later, there's flying phones that look like a cross between like an iPhone and like an insect. And I thought, you know, there's a lot of space that you have to sort of dedicate to, to sort of building that scaffolding. So when it came to the primary source document at the back, I was like, how do I tell a story about Milo that sort of gives you like a, a bird's eye view on, on what this kid is, but also how he sort of leveraged this fame and created it. And I looked at a lot of different influencers and a lot of different like spotlights from like GQ and it's sort of written to evoke that sort of thing. And I love that because that allows me to kind of like put my journalism hat back on and go like, how do I, how do I tackle this sort of world from a different angle? And in issue two, we have like back matter. That's like an internal memo from my biotechnology, um, much like those memos that went around from like Facebook and Twitter where people are like, I'm super concerned. There's some crazy shit going on here. Um, and that's like, you know, hyper, sort of like into the, the backend algorithms and how the recommendation engine <laughs> to come back to that works mm -hmm. on the Mycena pages and that kind of thing. And I thought that that was a really cool way to like sort of build uh, like a more uh, 3D view of the world that you create because so often a lot of that research or a lot of that world building kind of gets left um, on the cutting room floor and readers don't get to experience it. 
and I'm a big fan of how do you get readers to experience it in a way that feels like, like you're sort of reading these things that you're part of the in-group in this world or, or that you have like this special knowledge. And obviously Watchmen, right? Like Watchmen's the high watermark of doing that really, really well. Mm -hmm. And you don't need to read any of the stuff I put in the backs of issues, but if you do, you'll have a better understanding of everything that goes on. Like there's something in one single line of that spotlight from issue one that directly ties into the opening of issue two. So if people read it, they'll, they'll have a greater context for that scene. If they don't, the scene will still work, but you know, you get that extra punch if you, if you can make the connection. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting quirk for want of a better word um, to the lettering in this yeah. issue um, where there's highlighted words throughout. Was that in the script? Did you specifically call that out? Um, and I, I, I spent a bunch of time looking for patterns. Or was, I, was I missing something or is it something that'll kind of play out over the course and by when I get to the end it's like Oh, <laughs> okay. So, so two things, cause this has come up a lot and I find it very interesting. One, um, there is not like a, a special meaning per se in that it is just a different way to sort of bold text. Mm -hmm. um, Haas and I talked the, the letter on the book mm -hmm. and said, how do we sort of create a, a look for the lettering that evokes the sort of like business e aspect of Silicon Valley. And we kind of both rested on that sort of highlighting. And they're like the sickly green to sort of give this idea or evoke this nature of like everything has this little layer of rot beneath it. That's sort of uh, throughout the first issue and, and subsequent issues, everything kind of has this like sickly, smelly, gross feel to it. Having said all of that, um, there is some emphasis put on certain words because there's something going on with language in the book that uh, it's sort of, it said right at the beginning, a word that can be changed into various permutations, whatever phrases, I don't know the exact words, mm -hmm. um, even though I wrote it, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like you have like my C and you have my low and you have my Senna and you have lots of these different things. So there is something going on there that as the series develops, there's a, a, a plot playful uh, language construct going on. And then you have that symbol um, on the second page, which will continue to come up. And as you read, if you pay attention to some of these things, you might actually be able to figure out what that symbol stands for before you get to the end. Um, but probably not until about issue four. Mm. Okay. Um, just uh, talking about the uh, the art real quick, uh, Andy McDonald and then uh, I think Triona Farrell's doing the colors. Uh, there's a two page sequence, uh, and I, I didn't notice this until like uh, you know a, a subsequent reading, where we see Anne leaving for Bramwell's uh, dinner and then Bramwell preparing dinner, that uses the same panel layout and sort of general shapes, and you know, I, I think part of the reason it kind of hid for me at first is like, well, this, you know, this is a book that has a lot of these sort of strong visceral horror images, especially, you know, in the very beginning and in the very end. So to see all of a sudden there's this like formalist sequence, like it, it was, it was a real surprise and, and it was a real kind of neat treat right there in the, in the middle of the book. And it's, it's absolutely, it's right in, it's right in the middle. And I, I did that because I was like, I've just front loaded people with a, a bunch of crazy shit and I'm about to back load this with a bunch of crazy shit. So how do we just do this nice sort of like poetic middle scene that sort of just has this like almost like musicality to it and the way that the imagery um, matches one another. And like Shriona and Andy are a dream team. I've, I've been so lucky to work with the two of them because like I'm throwing some crazy shit at them and they every single time just like knock it out of the park. And there's lots of stuff that Andy's done that are just like subtle little things that I absolutely love. Like the angles of that two page spread, like the way that Anne's car cuts the panel is the exact same angle as the knife. And like, I scripted all that stuff, but I was like, I had a, 
note in the script that was like, if you can't do this, it's completely chill. I'm a crazy person. I know this. And then it came back and it was like, it was absolutely perfect. And I, I to Andy and Triona's credit, they, they work so well together, but like little things that are coming up and subsequent issues were like, Triona's using really interesting color holds on some of Andy's work. And then like Haas has gone in and created his own like emojis uh, for some of the sequences. So like, we're gonna see some crazy live streamed horrific shit in the book. And like, one of the things that we wanted to do was like, how do you create that like, well, this is live streaming on social media, but it's horrific. So like, Triona's color is working in tandem with Andy, but then there's like a stream of like, heart emojis over some of like the worst horrific shit you're ever going to see because like that people are excited about it or whatever and we wanted to create that like really interesting interplay of those three elements working together and uh yeah i can't wait for people to see uh the end of issue two and the beginning of issue three nice (laughs) um you know, when you're writing books like this and Lonely Receiver that are these sort of heavy, uh, unsettling examinations of the human condition, you know, do you feel like you need to decompress in some way after working on them or, or are you, you know, wholly comfortable staring into the abyss at, at this point? Um, I usually have a pretty good cry when I finish a book. I'm not even joking. Like I usually like sort of like let it out um, in this big way because it is a weird space to to live in. And like, I don't normally sort of exist in that space in, in my normal life. Like I'm not one of those horror writers that wears all black and sort of like <laughs> has a dour attitude and sort of, I kind of exist in the opposite uh, end of the spectrum in a lot of ways. And I, I try very hard to sort of be uh, excited and, and sort of like lead with positivity and, and color and and just sort of in general, like, not be that dour mood, um, but it's hard. It, I also really care passionately about a lot of these things and and feel like they're important conversations to have. And also just, am, I'm profoundly in love with the idea of unsettling people. I have been that way my whole life and I don't know what it is or what it says about me, but like I can remember like my first place living with roommates and like, putting on the end of day of the dead unprompted at a party showing everyone at the party, the scene where like Rhodes gets his head ripped off and you hear his vocal cords snap and like, and me being so excited and like the mood just fucking dying and people being like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You crazy person. And like, I can like, that's like my personality crystallized in a nutshell where it's like, I really, that's the thing that gets me excited primarily because it, it, it prompts a conversation about why we were uncomfortable or what that's making us feel. And I think that like, there's a lot of people who talked about Lonely Receiver in this way that it's just like this deep unsettling pit. And I try to pace things in a very specific way. So it's like, there's a gradual descent. So like, even though people felt grossed out or sick by the beginning of Lonely Receiver, you know, by the time you get to the fifth issue, that book's fucking crazy. And it's a, a crazy descent into like madness where you're now trapped with it. And I really believe that good horror is like, show you something you're uncomfortable with, take you a couple steps further, show you something that makes you even more uncomfortable, take you a couple steps further, then trap you with some shit that you can't look away from <laughs> and force you to think about it. Like a character, you sort of take the reader on this descent to the point where like you know because you don't want people to be completely grossed out right away because you have nowhere to go uh, from that in terms of storytelling but in terms of also just like in imagery like you just don't want people to feel like they've already reached an apex and i know that may feel that way when you get to the end of i breathe the body one but i promise you it gets crazier and it gets more horrifying and there was a a a real conceited effort to sort of like continue to build because I also feel like that's the way that social media works these days is that like something happens and horrific events don't happen in isolation. They actually sort of cause a chain reaction and often what what seems bad at the beginning 
ends up so much worse by the time we're at the end. Um, you know, and like we can, there's so many examples from the last year of that happening where seemingly innocuous things sort of snowball. Look at like, it's dumb, but like, look at Bean Dad who like, you know, <laughs> was an idiot and said something dumb, but it like, now he's not on Twitter anymore. And he became like the main character where people just sort of, but it also just like it, Ken Jennings from Jeopardy got involved and like maybe almost lost his job hosting Jeopardy. And there's just these crazy sort of like ripple effects that happens in these types of things that I, I want to also create in, in these books and these ideas that like, you know, once you start engaging with something and it makes you uncomfortable, you should probably recognize that you need to step away. But instead, we often just sort of give our, more of ourselves to these things. By the end, we can't really define ourselves without it. Uh, so, so as we're kind of kind of hit the cool down here, uh, wanted to make sure that we mentioned, uh, you know, you've got a, uh, you've also got a sequel to Undone by Blood, uh, your your uh, revenge uh, drama western with uh, Lonnie Nadler, Sammy Cavella, Jason Wardy, and the aforementioned Hassan uh, Otsman Elhow coming out next month. Uh, this one sounds like it's going to be uh, more of a heist uh, set against the Great Depression, but with uh, Solomon Eaton, the gunslinger, still sort of whispering in the protagonist's uh, ear from his perch in the fictional Old West. Um, what about this era, uh, the 1930s, uh, you know, made it a place that you guys wanted to explore? Um, in a, in a, the simplest terms, uh, because it's so much like today. Um, the America of 1934 was recovering from a gigantic sort of economic depression. Um, there was fierce uh, racism running rampant through the country. There was also this idea that uh, for a lot of Americans that you're on your own. Uh, Hoover, Herb, Herbert Hoover's policies were essentially like, there's no relief coming. Everyone is on their own and left to fend for themselves. And I think that at the same time, you sort of have the birth of the Western film and the Western genre becoming this big part of American society. And so Lonnie and I are really interested in how do you take the cultural context of a certain era and then juxtapose that against something that is essentially American myth and show the dichotomy between the myth and reality. And hopefully the, the idea is that with the series that every arc would sort of tackle a different era and show that juxtaposition in different ways to reflect different things. You know, in an ideal world, we would do one in the Bush era and sort of show, you know, what was the cowboy in the Bush era? Because the cowboy in the Bush era is very different than the cowboy of the 1970s and, and on and on. So like, it's a real dissection of the 1930s America following the Great Depression and a heist that's motivated by revenge but a revenge against America specifically rather than a revenge against an individual. That sounds fantastic. Uh, definitely uh, excited for that. And then, you know, excited for any, any news on the future development of the uh, potential uh, TV adaptation. So um, did I also see that you've got uh, something in the pipeline with Hayden Sherman? Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> that you little, no doubt cannot talk about. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't talk about it at all. But essentially, what I can say is that Hayden and I worked on Angel and Spike at Boom mm -hmm. um, in 2020. We we were we signed on for 12 issues due to the COVID 19 bullshittery um, that got cut down to three. And yeah. so we sort of left ourselves. We were like, oh, we were going to be working together for a year. Well, let's just start developing something. Um, so Hayden and I have worked on working on this like original sort of um, I've been pitching it as like a Cronenbergian house of leaves, uh, which is insane. <laughs> um, but you just Hayden broke my brain, man. <laughs> <laughs> Either of those things separately are kind of brain busting. You put them yeah. together and it's just like, <laughs> yeah, so it's it's uh, it's going to be crazy. But Hayden is drawing it and watercoloring it himself. Um, so it's like this beautiful, gross, like it's got this very like, again, that gross texture that the book should like feel like wet. And the idea is that um, we are creating something that when it will be all done, will just be this beautiful object for people to hold 
the idea is to do something around the 250 page mark in a graphic novel. So um, it will not be in people's hands anytime remotely soon, mm -hmm. but it is happening. <laughs> uh, that that's fantastic, and you know it's it's funny. I I I, I forgot that you did uh, Angel and Spike together, and I was like, man, those two like just completely forgetting that that exists. I was like, those two would be a very good fit together. <laughs> yeah, we we got we get along so well, and it was like I, I was like, why hadn't we ever talked about working together before? Because th like our styles just gelled so hard, and now it's like, yeah, we're both just. We're crazy people. I pitched him the, like the craziest concept I possibly could, and he was so down. And now it's like we've created this giant monster for ourselves, very literally. So, uh, as, as, so we are wrapping up, but that means that it's time for Pet Corner. <laughs> Tell us about your cat. Two cats, actually. Cats. Um, I have a, a Maine Coon named Pancho, P-A-N-C-H-O. Um, and he uh, was a rescue kitty. Uh, he sort of, I found him when he was like, I'd say like four weeks old uh, in the forest actually, oh, wow. and took him home and sort of nursed him uh, to health and uh, kind of litter trained him. And now he's six and he's kind of, he goes literally everywhere with me. I had to close the door to my office because he <laughs> would not, he would be like walking in front of the computer the whole time. And then I have Wilson, um, who's a rescue kitty as well. Um, he, uh, came from a very sort of tumultuous home. We don't really know the deal behind him. He's eight years old. He's a Russian blue. And he's like, he has penetrating like a gaze where his eyes are super big all the time. I, we actually kind of think he might be uh, like partially blind because like, he doesn't seem to sort of process <laughs> things, but he's always just like looking at you from afar with these giant eyes, like studying you plotting to murder you um and he's he's super lovely they don't always get along super well because pancho's like extremely snuggly like most main coons like he will literally not leave you alone and uh pancho's also like uh he's he's huge he's like maybe 17 18 pounds and uh he sleeps on my desk beside me while i write and like he stretches out his full length and like I work on a eight foot desk and he takes up two feet of it. It's crazy. And I can't, I can't actually, he'll like claw my legs or bite my ankles if I don't let him on the desk. So this is the compromise we have. <laughs> uh, so uh, what are you reading right now? Um, I just got Seeds of Anna Senti and David Aja. Mm -hmm. And oh, so fucking good and yeah completely i didn't know it was like about biotech and stuff which i was just like oh my god <laughs> um so that's great and i'm reading um fauna um by christine vodnias i don't know how to say her last name um an eco horror book i am working on an eco horror project that i can't talk about right now should, mm -hmm. should be announced relatively soon and so i've been reading tons of eco horror stuff um a really fantastic book. Right on. Yeah, no, I just finished The Seeds uh, very recently. And it's fine. I bought the first two issues when they came out in 2018. And then it never, you know, the other two didn't come out. And then, so I've been waiting for the collection for a long time. And uh, it, it definitely, the wait paid off. I can't wait. I, I just reread issue one and two over the weekend, which I did the same thing. I bought mm -hmm. them and then I put it down forgot to read the last two. And now I'm like, as soon as I get off this call, that's what I'm going to go do. Nice. <laughs> treat for, treat for good work. Well, uh, Zach, I, I'll, yeah. uh, we'll, we'll, we'll leave you to the, to enjoy the rest of the seeds. Uh, as we're wrapping up, uh, how can people, uh, follow you and keep up with everything you got going on? Um, so you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Zach B E Thompson. Um, and I also have a Substack that goes out every week on Tuesday called The Voices. The Voice in Your Head is Mine. You can find the sign-up links on both of those social media channels. I often talk about writing craft and what I'm reading, what I'm writing, what I'm watching. Click like and subscribe. <laughs> yeah, shit. No! <laughs> uh, Zach, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, guys.
That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is now part of ComicsXF, formerly Xavier Files, meaning you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom and Chris's on Infinite Earths, and a ton of great comics criticism at ComicsXF.com. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice, and a $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail for my collection. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from Toxman at ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel Spider-Woman series, and Lan M from Lan's Vids. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember to spay and neuter your good night and good luck. WMQA.